Hello everyone, this is Rabbi Michael Hatton. Welcome back to TanakhStudy.com. Today we will begin the study of the double parsha of Matot Mas'e, a lengthy section that concludes Sefer Bimidbar. We begin with chapter 30, verse 2, and we will conclude with chapter 36, verse 13. We will consider each one of the parshiot in isolation. Beginning with Parshat Matot, chapter 30, verse 2, through chapter 32, verse 42, Parshat Matot can be conveniently broken down into three smaller sections. The first part deals with the issue of vows and oaths and their annulment. The second part, the battle against Midian and distributing the spoils from that battle. And the third part, the two and a half tribes, Reuven, Gad, and half Menasheh, their desire to remain on the eastern side of the Arden, and the negotiations that take place with Moshe in order to prevent a rupture. Parshat Maseh begins with chapter 33, verse 1, and it can be divided as well into three smaller sections. The first section a list of the journeys through, through the wilderness. The second section, detailing preparations for possessing the new land, which include a directive to drive out the inhabitants, the delineation of the land's borders, and the designation of tribal leaders who will distribute the land. And the third section, containing the Levitical cities, the cities of refuge, and finally the marriage of the daughters of Tzilofchad within their tribe of Menasheh in order to safeguard the tribal territory. With that, Sefer Bimidbar concludes, Chazak Chazak Venit Chazek. One might say, that from the largest possible perspective, Matot Mas'e prepares us for the entry into the land. Topics that perhaps were presented only in outline earlier in the Torah are given greater prominence in these two parshiot because of their connection to the entry into the land. We will begin with today's section from Parshat Matot, chapter 30, verse 2, through chapter 31, verse 12. Today's section can be broken down into two main topics. Number one, the topic of vows and oaths, chapter 30, verses 2 through 17. And then the battle against Midian, and the victory over Midian, chapter 31, verses 1 through 12. We begin with the discussion of vows and oaths. 
and the commentaries, of course, are interested in how this discussion pertains to the larger context. There are two basic schools of approach. The Rashbam connects the beginning of our Parsha with the end of Parshat Pinchas. Looking backwards, he remarks that the section concerning the additional sacrifices on the holidays concluded with a verse which indicated that the discussion about the additional sacrifices, the Musafim, was intended to supplement any other sacrifices that the people of Israel might bring. Chapter 29, verse 39 reported, these you shall do for God on your holidays, these sacrifices, in other words, levad minidrechem vinidvotechem, not including or in addition to your vow sacrifices or your free will sacrifices, two categories of sacrifices in which an individual undertakes a vow or a responsibility upon themselves to present a sacrificial animal. Says the Rashbam, since the last section ended with the discussion of vows, vows concerning the bringing of a sacrifice, our section begins with the discussion of vows and oaths as well. So for the Rashbam, our context is informed by what precedes. Ibn Ezra, on the other hand, argues in the opposite direction. His general approach to the order of the Torah's topics is that ein mukdam umi'uchar Torah, the material is not necessarily arranged chronologically. For that reason, Ibn Ezra actually believes that our section concerning vows and oaths actually does not belong here, but belongs after the matter of the two and a half tribes and their desire to remain east of the Arden. As Ibn Ezra puts it, Lafida'ati, in my opinion, this particular section of vows and oaths actually was not promulgated until after the battle against Midian and after the episode of Bnei Gad and Bnei Reuven. In that episode, the two and a half tribes made an argument to remain east of the Arden, and eventually, after negotiations had taken place, Moshe allowed them to do so as long as they committed themselves to crossing over with their brethren and participating in the wars of conquest. Moshe assigned Rashe Avot Hamatot, the heads of the clans of the tribes, in order to ensure that the provisions of the agreement with the two and a half tribes would be fulfilled. Says Ibn Ezra, the mention of the heads of the clans of the tribes parallels the beginning of our section to get today where Moshe speaks to Rashi Hamatot, the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel. Ibn Ezra finds another parallel. In the story of the two and a half tribes, 
Moshe imposes a binding agreement on them, and he says to them, Hayotze mipichem ta'asu. What you have obligated yourselves with, you must perform. Says Ibn Ezra, this is a perfect parallel linguistically to the matter of oaths and pledges, where the Torah says, Kehol hayotze mipiv ya'aseh. One who makes an oath or a pledge must fulfill in accordance exactly with what they have verbalized. Therefore, unlike Rashbam, who looks to the preceding section in order to understand the placement of our section today concerning oaths and pledges, Ibn Ezra looks to the succeeding section in order to explain the placement. We begin with chapter 30, verse number 2. Vayidaber Moshe el rashei hamatot livne Yisrael lemor zehadavar asher tziva adunai. Moshe spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is the matter which God has commanded. Pasuk Gimel. Ish ki dor neder ladunai. Any man that makes an oath to God or swears a pledge to forbid something upon himself shall not desecrate his word. Everything that he says he shall fulfill. And in this particular verse, we are introduced to two important terms which color the entire discussion, neder and shivua. A neder is translated typically as a vow and a shivua as an oath. The difference between a neder and a shivua is that when I undertake a neder, it pertains to some permitted object which I make forbidden for myself. The neder relates to the cheftza, to use Talmudic language, which is the object in question. A shivuah, on the other hand, which is an oath, pertains to the person. I do not forbid the object on myself, but I forbid myself to do whatever is included in the oath. In Talmudic language, the shivuah pertains to the gavra, to the person, to the subject, and not to the object. This verse, of course, concluded by saying, that whatever a person pronounces in the context of a neder or a shivua must be fulfilled. Everything that he utters from his mouth must be fulfilled. I'll just point out that this particular section is highly informed by a parallel piece in Sefer Devarim, Parshat Ki chapter 23, verses 22 through 24, which indicate that if a person makes a vow to God, he must fulfill it on time. If he fails to, to do so, 
God will demand it and it will be counted as a transgression. One who desists from vowing incurs no transgression. So in Sefer Devarim, the Torah indicates while a person may undertake a vow, it's much better not to undertake a vow than to undertake a vow which is not fulfilled. In that section in Sefer Devarim, the Pasuk concludes in language reminiscent of our section here, that which utters, that which issues forth from your lips, you shall observe and you shall do, as you have made a vow to the Lord your God, just as you have spoken with your mouth. So the most important principle, the really the foundation principle of vows and oaths in the Torah is if one pronounces a vow or an oath, one obligates oneself to fulfill it. And failure to fulfill a vow or an oath is a serious transgression. It is regarded as a chet, and on some level it is a desecration of God's name by whom I swear that oath or make that vow, perhaps. Pasuk Dalad in our section. V'isha kitidor neder ladunai v'asra isar b'veit aviha bin ureha. A woman who makes a vow to God and forbids something upon herself while she is in her father's house in her youth. Pasuk he. V'shama aviha et nidrah if her father hears her vow and that which she has forbidden upon herself and her father remains silent, then her vow shall be established and that which she has forbidden to herself shall be established, which is to say, she must fulfill it. Pasuk Vav. Vimheni aviha ota biyom shomo, kol nidareha veesareha, asher asra al nafsha lo yakum, vadunayi slachla, kiheni aviha ota. If her father, however, cancels her vow on the day that he hears it, then any vow or forbidden thing which she has forbidden to herself will not be established. God will forgive her because her father has canceled her vow for her. The language of canceling a vow by the father, annulling or perhaps breaking, is heini. The root is nun, vav, aleph, and it also provides, of course, another link with the story of Bnei Gad and Bnei Reuven later in the parsha. Moshe will turn to them and before the negotiations commence, he will say, why do you want to remain on the eastern side of the Arden, seeing that it will cause the people of Israel to lose resolve and lose their morale, and they themselves will not, enter, will, will not want to enter the land. As Moshe puts it, Why are you canceling, breaking, or annulling the heart or the resolve of the people of Israel? So in our section, we basically have a discussion of the situation 
for the situation under which a father may annul or cancel the vow of his daughter. Applying some of the Talmudic discussion, the following details emerge. Generally speaking, a vow has legal standing when it, is, when it is undertaken by an adult. An adult, for the purposes of the halakha, is a young man from the age of 13 years and one day, or a young woman from the age of 12 years and one day. At that point, insofar as halakha is concerned, they are considered adults, and their vows have legal standing. The rabbis, however, understand that there is a period leading up to adulthood during which vows can also have legal standing. They refer to this period as mufla samuch leish, which is to say, a young man who is approaching his 13th birthday. If that young man is 12 years old and one day, and he undertakes some sort of a neder or a vow, so we say, nidarav nivdakim, we ascertain whether in fact he understood the consequences of making that vow. Im if he understands to whom he vows and for whom he sanctifies an object, nidro neder, then his vow stands. Which is, to, which is to say, although from a legal standpoint, his vow does not have standing until he is a man 13 years old and one day, nevertheless, a year earlier, that vow can still have significance if he has understood the implications of making it. This is also true of a woman. A young woman who is 11 years old and one day, who makes a vow, is also considered to be mufla samuch leish, which is to say, we again try and investigate whether she had understanding of the implications. If she did have understanding of the implications, then the vow stands. If she doesn't, then the vow does not. So the basic distinction is between a katan and a ktana, a child, male or female, versus an ish or isha, a young man or a young woman, where a child's vows have no significance and an adult's vows have full significance and one year before becoming an adult, then it is of questionable significance and must be investigated in order for it to have standing. For a woman, however, there is an intermediate period. A ktana or a child is as long as the young lady is 12 years old and less. She is considered to be an adult above the age of 12 and a half, 12 years and six months. The intervening period, the six months between 12 years old and 12 and a half, is regarded as the status of a na'ara or a young woman, and that is what we are talking about in our particular section. So when a girl is 12 through 12 and a half, she is defined as a na'ara, and in that situation, her nidarim, 
her vows which she undertakes are subject to her father's or her husband's, as we will see, agreement. Only if her father or her husband agrees with the vow that she makes does it have standing, but at the same time they have the power to cancel or to annul those vows. So our first section, which we just read, spoke about the situation where the father can cancel the vow of his daughter, who still lives under his roof, as long as she is between the ages of 12 and 12 and a half. If she's younger than 12, she's just a minor. Her vows have no standing anyways. If she's older than 12 and a half, she's already regarded as an adult. Her father cannot cancel her vow in that situation. It's only in this intermediate transitional period that her father who hears her vow, vow can cancel it on the day that he heard it. Verse number 7. If she becomes to a man with vows upon her, or words that she has said with her lips, concerning which she has forbidden herself, if her husband hears on that day and remains silent, then her vows or that which she has forbidden upon herself will be established. Verse 9, If on the day that her husband hears, he cancels that vow, and he cancels that which her lips have spoken concerning which she forbade herself, then it will be canceled and God will forgive her. The commentaries understood this section to refer to the specific situation of an arusa. An arusa is a woman who is engaged but has not yet been married. From the point of view of halakha, it has a particular status. It's not comparable to what we call engagement today. And a woman who is an arusa for the purposes of some things is regarded as having married status. So in this particular section, we are saying that when she is an arusa, when she is engaged to marry, her future husband essentially has the power to cancel her vows just as her father does. And in fact, both of them would need to agree to cancel the vow in order for it to have no significance. If either the father or the husband in that situation agrees with her vow, then it stands and it is established. Pasuk Yud. The vow of a widow or a divorced woman, all that she has forbidden upon herself will be established for her. So in this situation, clearly, there is no husband, there is no father, and therefore the vow stands as the woman pronounced it. Yud Aleph. Vimbeti Shah Nadara, Oasra Isar al Nafsha Bishvua, 
if she pronounced a vow in the house of her husband or forbade something upon herself with an oath, If her husband heard and remained silent, he did not cancel it for her, then all of her vows will be established and that which she has forbidden upon herself will stand. If her husband cancels those vows on the day that he hears them, everything which her lips have uttered in the matter of vows or that which she has forbidden upon herself will not stand. Her husband has canceled them and God will forgive her. So basically, we may summarize by saying there are four separate situations that our section discusses. A na'ara, a young woman who is in the house of her father between the ages of 12 and 12 and a half. In that situation, her father may cancel her vows on the day that he becomes aware of them. The second situation, Na'ara Arusa, a young woman engaged to marry with the status of an Arusa. In that situation, both the father and the future husband have to agree that the vow be annulled in order for it to have no standing. And Na'ara Nisu'a, the third situation, a young woman who becomes married. In that situation, the husband and the husband only has the power to annul the vow. And finally, the almana u'girusha, the widowed woman or the divorcee whose vows stand. Verse number 14. Any vow, any oath, which is an oath to forbid and to afflict oneself, her husband shall establish it and her husband shall annul it. The rabbis understand from this verse that the husband and or the father in whatever the situation is, does not have the power to cancel any vow that a woman makes, but only a vow which is called a vow of inui nefesh, a vow in which the woman undertakes to deny herself something, to afflict her soul. The rabbis say the husband or the father also has the power to annul a vow, which is beino veina, things that pertain to the spousal relationship. Only these two categories of vows can be annulled by the husband or the father, because it's these two categories which impact most profoundly on the relationship between the man and the woman. Verse number 15. And if her husband remains silent from one day to the next, 
which is to say he does not cancel the vow on the day that he becomes aware of it, and he establishes her vow, or whatever she has forbidden upon herself, if he so establishes it, it remains standing, because he remains silent on the day when he heard of it. Verse 16. If he cancels these vows out after he has heard of them, then he will bear her iniquity, which is to say, after a day has passed, from when he heard about the vow, he may no longer cancel it. Verse number 17 concludes the section. Ela hachukim, asher tziva Adonai et Moshe ben ish leishto ben av levito, these are the statutes which God commanded Moshe concerning a man and a woman, his wife, between a father and a daughter, concerning a young lady who is a na'ara in the house of her father. In this particular section, the word that is used consistently to describe the act of canceling or annulling a vow is lehafer or lehani. Lehani, we already discussed, means to break, and lehafer means to abrogate or to cancel. The rabbis learned an important new category from this material pertaining to anyone who undertakes a vow. And this is called which is to say, how can a vow be permitted to anyone? And the answer is, in order to do so, a Beit Din is required, a court consisting of three judges is required, or perhaps one judge who is expert in the matters of vows. As the rabbis put it in the Mishnah, in Chagigah, chapter 1, Mishnah 8, Mishnah 8, Heter nedarim poochin ba'avir ve'ein lahem al-mashim ismochu. The idea of being released from vows, as it were, hovers in the air and has now no foundation in the Torah on which to rest. In other words, within the Torah itself, there is no mention of the possibility of having a vow being canceled for a regular person only for the woman as we discussed in our section. But nevertheless, the rabbis understood that this category exists, but it's not about hafara, it's about hatara. And the difference between the two is in heter nedarim, as it were, we cancel the vow from its very foundations, what the rabbis call charata meikara, regret from the very outset of the vow. If I only would have known what I know now, I would never have undertaken that vow to begin with. That's called hatarat nedarim. Whereas what we are discussing in our section is where the woman wants the vow to be established or to remain. And nevertheless, the husband or the father in the circumstances which we described has the power to cancel it. We move on to the next section, chapter 
אחר תאסף אל עמך. Exact the vengeance of the people of Israel from the Midianites, and then you shall be gathered unto your people, which is to say, you shall die. So here God commands Moshe to prepare to battle the Midianim, and Moshe understands fully that this will be one of the very last acts in his life. Remember that the command to battle the Midianites was first mentioned in Parshat Pinchas, chapter 25, verse number 7, and now it is to be fulfilled. Rashi contrasts the Moavim versus the Midianim. We do not find that the Torah commands us to battle the Moabites, even though it was Balak who summoned Bil'am and precipitated the events that led to the great failure at Baal Peor, as we have discussed. Nevertheless, Rashi says, because the Moavim had good reason to fear the people of Israel, they had good reason to feel threatened, therefore we can excuse their conduct. However, the Midianim, they involve themselves in a, in a conflict that really concerned them not at all. And for that reason, they are regarded as having been particularly cruel to the people of Israel in precipitating the events of Baal Peor and bringing the plague upon the people. And that is why the Torah commands Moshe to now raise an army in order to fight them and punish them for their conduct. Verse number three. Moshe spoke to the people saying, gather people from you for the army, gird them such that they will be against Midian in order to exact the vengeance of God upon Midian. The word heichaltsu, which means to cause to be girded, literally to gird oneself, Chalatzim are one's loins or one's waist. And the hechalitz means to gird oneself, in this case with a weapon such as a sword. So hechalzum itchem means cause men to be girded with a weapon in order to fight the Midianim. But this, of course, is also the root. It will come up later in the Parsha as well in the story of Bnei Gad and Bnei Reuven as the term chalutzim, which of course becomes the inspiration for the modern Israeli phenomena or phenomenon of the chalutzim or the pioneers, i.e. those that girded themselves and were courageous enough to settle the land in spite of all of the difficulties and all of the opposition. Verse number four, Elef lamate, elef lamate, lechol matot Yisrael tishlechu latzava, a thousand for each tribe, a thousand for each tribe, for all of the tribes of Israel, you shall send to this army. Vayimasru me'alfei Yisrael elef lamate, shneimasar elef chalutzei tzava, a thousand men from each tribe, from the people of Israel, were given over, 12,000 altogether, who were girded themselves for this fighting force. The rabbis comment that the 12 tribes, in this case, 
exceptionally even included the Levites. We might note, of course, that a thousand from each tribe clearly is a symbolic move. What Moshe, what God is trying to indicate is this is a battle for all of the people of Israel and therefore each tribe is equally invested in the struggle. We might compare and contrast this moment to a less sanguine one from the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 17. The rebellion of Avshalom against his father David, Achitophel, Avshalom's advisor and conspirator, suggests to Avshalom to gather an army of 12,000 men to chase down David and to kill him. While 12,000 men in Achitophel's army are not specified as being drawn from the 12 tribes, that's the symbolic implication. So 12,000 men of Israel is an implication that the entire people are involved in the matter and invested in the victory. We continue, chat, uh, verse number six. Vaishlach otam Moshe elef lamatel la tzava otam veet pinchas ben elazar hakohen la tzava uchle hakodesh vachatsotzrot hatirua biyado. Moshe sent them, a thousand for each tribe, to this army. He sent them and Pinchas, the son of Elazar, the priest, to the army, along with the holy vessels and the trumpets in his hand. So Pinchas is sent as the leader of this army. And of course, this represents some sort of poetic justice. Pinchas ben Elazar was the one who zealously guarded God's honor in killing Zimri and Kozbi, the Midianite princess. And so now Pinchas is sent at the head of the fighting force that will complete the vengeance against the Midianim, Kozbi's people. As Rashi puts it in the name of Chazal, Mi shehitchil ba mitzvah shaharag Kozbi Batsur Yigmor, the one who began the performance of the mitzvah, should now complete it. We note, of course, that he has with him Klei HaKodesh, the holy vessels, which means the Ark of the Covenant, which is brought into battle, as well as the Chatzotzrot, the Tiru'ah, the Chatzotzrot HaTiru'ah, the trumpets of sounding, which were first mentioned in Parshat Baha Lotcha, chapter 10, and in Parshat Bahalotcha, those particular trumpets are associated with battle. Chapter 10, verse number 9, If a war approaches your land, and there is an enemy that is besieging you, then you shall sound the trumpets in order to be remembered before God your Lord, and you shall be saved from your enemies. Verse number seven. They assembled against Midian as God commanded Moshe, and they killed all of the males. 
ואת מלכי מדיין הרגו על חלליהם, את אבי ואת רקם, ואת צור ואת חור ואת רבע, חמשת מלכי מדיין, ואת בלעם בן באור הרגו בחרב. The kings of Midian, they killed with all of the other casualties, Evi, and Rechem, and Sur, and Hur, and Reva, the five kings of Midian, and Bil'am ben Be'or, they killed by the sword, which of course indicates that Bil'am, in spite of the fact that he seemingly made his way home at the end of Parshat Balak, either made a detour in Midian and remained with them to watch the downfall of the Israelites, or else somehow journeyed home and perhaps journeyed back. In any case, because of his deep involvement in the matter of Baal Peor and the Midianite women, he is also put to the sword and reaches a sorry end. Verse number 9. The people of Israel captured the Midianite women and the young children and all of their animals and all of their flocks and all of their wealth they took as spoils. All of their cities where they dwelt, and all of their fortresses they burned down with fire. They took all of the spoils, whether those concerning humans or animals. The Torah employs a unique set of vocabulary here, which we generally do not hear. It's associated with warfare. And the words in question, shalal, malkoach, shevi, and biza, all have slightly different meanings. Shalal means things that are taken in battle, what we would call in English spoils. Malkoach refers to animals, those things which can be moved from place to place. Shavi are human beings which are captured, and biza is the general act of despoiling, the general act of taking booty from the conquered enemy. Verse number 12 concludes the section and our discussion for today. They brought, the soldiers that is, they brought to Moshe, to Elazar the priest, and to the congregation of Israel, they brought the captives, and they brought the captured animals, and they brought the spoils to the camp, where the people were encamped at the plains of Moab, which is against the city of Yericho on the banks of the River Jordan.